0: Well, good morning, everybody. How are you guys doing this morning? It's been a good day so far, hasn't it? God is good. God is good. Those of you who haven't been here before, I'm Pastor Jeremy Bannister. And one of the things that we do here at Heights is we go through the Bible every five years together. And so what we do is we read the Bible together as a congregation six days a week. And then the sermon on Sunday is based in whole or in part on those messages. It gives us an opportunity to really go through the Word of God. If you've never done that before, we invite you to do that with us. There's a couple of ways you can get involved with that. The first way is we have a reading schedule of our entire year's worth of readings there. And so you can go to the information desk, and those schedules are free. Just go ahead and grab one of those, take it with you. and can join on in the readings. The second way you can do it is that you can go online to youtube.com backslash heights christian church and there we do a devotional for you every single week we do a devotion for you guys um in that, or Every single day we do a devotion for you guys, and it breaks down those same passages of Scripture and goes a little bit more in depth so you can take something with you. Because guess what? This next week, uh, we're going to be reading all the land breaking up. And for those of you who are reading you know, Joshua, you might be saying, well, what can you get out of the land breaking up of stuff? This might be a good week for you to step on online to the YouTube channel and and go through some of those devotions because the lessons are there. They're just a little harder to find. So... We're going to step you guys through that. But today, we are going to go over our synopsis of Joshua 7-12. through 12. How many of you guys read this past week? Raise your hand. All right, sweet. And so this is kind of a really hard passage of Scripture to read through. As a matter of fact, the conquering, uh, the conquest of the land of promise... By the Israelites are some of the most problematic accounts for many people believing that the God of the Bible is a God of love and mercy because he commands the people of Israel to go and wipe out all of these people. As a matter of fact, when we read in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 through 4, when we talk about this, this particular passage of scripture. God is very, very specific concerning the things that he says, and it's these types of things that give people problems, and this is what it says. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittite, the Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you, And when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. It is accounts like that and commands like that that many who have found themselves non-believers in the God of the Bible, in the Jesus of the Bible, people like Richard Dawkins, to come to statements such as this, as he does, in the God delusion. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction, jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. A vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser. A misogynistic, homophobic, racist, inficidal genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomanical, uh, um, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. That's a mouthful right there, isn't it? And it sounds, it waxes poetic, doesn't it? It sounds given with emotion and conviction. But is this really the case? When we read the scriptures, and we read even the accounts that we read this past week, is this really the case that we're destined for destruction? That these people have no hope whatsoever. As a matter of fact, that's the title of the sermon today is a question destined for destruction. Are we? Were they? And What proofs do we have in the scripture to tell us one way or the other? Because we can point to these things that God has mentioned right before they enter into the land of promise, not to make treaties with them and not to be defiled by them in any way, and not to show them any mercy and destroy them 100% totally. And to look at that only as that command in a vacuum would do God a great injustice. See, there's a lot of patience toward God for the people of Canaan, whether you believe it or not, it's just totally there. If we go back all the way to the calling of Abram, and God making his covenant with Abram back in Genesis chapter 15, we have this foreshadowing of this impending judgment all the way back there. So turn with me, if you will, Genesis chapter 15. Starting in verse 12, says, As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age." In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Wow, now that's an interesting statement because we have right here the judgment of God for the Amorites being laid in wait, if you will. And it wasn't during the time of Abraham that he was going to execute it. As a matter of fact, not even during the time of Abraham, not even during the time of his children or their children or their children, which takes us to Joseph. Or for 400 years after that, the patience of God for the Canaanite people spans between 500 and 600 years from the time in which he told Abraham the sins of the Amorites has not reached its full measure. That's a pretty patient God, don't you guys think? That doesn't sound like somebody who's just waiting to stomp his foot at a people who don't know him. He's wanting patiently and waiting patiently for them to do that. So what has happened during that time? What type of people are we looking at in this land? What has happened in these ensuing five and six hundred years in the land of Canaan? And what were the practices of the people that were there that God found so abominable? Well, if we look at the End of Deuteronomy chapter 12, God kind of gives a little bit of a preview of how far down this society has debased itself. Verse 29, it says this The Lord your God will cut off before you the nations you are about to invade and dispossess. But when you have driven them out and settled in their land, and after they've been destroyed before you, be careful not to be ensnared by inquiring about their gods, saying, How do these nations serve their gods? We will do the same. You must not worship the Lord your God in their way, because in worshiping their gods, they do all kinds of detestable things the Lord hates. They even burn their sons and daughters in the fire as sacrifices to their gods. You imagine all these children we've just released for children's church being used as a sacrifice in order to please gods. This wasn't a group of people who were just barbecuing in their backyard and all of a sudden the people of Israel showed up and said, I'm going to be merciless to you. These were people who were doing harm to their own people, to their own children for the sake of trying to gain favor with the gods in whom they served. And these are things God never asked anyone anywhere to do. This is how far these societies have degraded themselves. And after hundreds of years, centuries of patient waiting, God has now chosen the people of Israel and this time of deliverance by which to be the judgment upon these people in Canaan.
1: And so there's great patience by God
0: for these people in whom judgment is coming. But then we see a very interesting account in the middle of all of these judgments. We're going to read it together. It's found in Joshua chapter 9.
1: We're going to read the entirety of the chapter.
0: Now when all the kings west of the Jordan heard about these things, those in the hill countries, in the western foothills, and along the entire coast of the great sea, as far as Lebanon, the kings of the Hittites, the Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, they came together to make war against Joshua and Israel. Please remember that. That will be important for later today. However, When the people of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they they resorted to a ruse. They went as a delegation whose donkeys were loaded with worn-out sacks and old wineskins, cracked and mended. The men put on worn and patched sandals on their feet and wore old clothes. All the bread of their food supply was dry and moldy. And then they went to Joshua in the camp of Gilgal and said to him and the men of Israel, We've come from a distant country. Make a treaty with us. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, perhaps you live near us. How then can we make a treaty with you? We're your servants, they said to Joshua. But Joshua asked, who are you and where do you come from? And they answered, your servants have come from a very distant country because of the fame of the Lord your God. For we have heard reports of him, all that he did in Egypt, all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, Sihon, king of Heshbon, and Og, king of Bashan, who reigned in Ashtaroth. And our elders and all those living in our country said to us, take provisions for your country. Go and meet them and say to them, we are your servants. Make a treaty with us. This bread of ours was warm when we packed it at home on the, way, on the day we left, we came to you. But now see how dry and moldy it is? And these wineskins that we filled were new, but see how cracked they are. And our clothes and sandals are worn out by the very long journey. Men of Israel sampled their provisions, but did not inquire of the Lord. And Joshua made a treaty of peace with them to let them live. And the leaders of the assemblies ratified it by, by oath. Three days after they made the treaty with the Gibeonites, the Israelites heard that they were neighbors living near them. So the Israelites set out, and on the third day they came to the cities, Gibeon, Kephira, beeroth and kiriath Jerem. But the Israelites did not attack them, because the leaders of the assemblies had sworn an oath to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. The whole assembly grumbled against the leaders. But all the leaders answered, we had given them our oath by the Lord, the God of Israel, and we cannot touch them now. This is what we will do to them. We'll let them live so that wrath will not fall on us for breaking the oath we swore to them. They continued, let them live, but let them be woodcutters and water carriers for the entire community. So the leader's promise to them was kept. Then Joshua summoned the Gibeonites and said, why did you deceive us by saying we live a long way from you? while well, actually, you live near us. You're now under a curse. You will never cease to serve as woodcutters and water carriers for the house of my God. And they answered, Joshua, your servants were clearly told how the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you the whole land and to wipe out all of its inhabitants from before you. So we feared for our lives because of you. And that's why we did this. We are now in your hands. Do to us whatever seems good and right to you. So Joshua saved them from the Israelites, and they did not kill them. That day he made the Gibeonites woodcutters and water carriers for the community and for the altar of the Lord at the place the Lord would choose. And that is what they are to this day. What an interesting passage of Scripture. Here the Gibeonites are, and they hear of what is God has done and what God has decreed for the inhabitants of the land. And so they make up this, this ruse. They make up this, this story. They put on actors, basically, to go out and say, look, we've come from a far land. Make a treaty with us. And when they make that treaty with them, they say, finally find out, wait a second, you're, only, you're like a couple days away from us. What are you talking about?
1: We feared for our lives.
0: We know what God has said for you to do to us. And so we're trying to preserve our life by any means necessary, by your good grace. And whatever you say, we will acquiesce to. We will be your servants. Think about what that meant. Remember, these are Gibeonites, these are Hivites, part of the people that were supposed to be destroyed. They were the ones who would be the ones who would give their children off to Molech. In order for them to be servants of Israel, they have to give all of that up. To be water carriers and woodcutters for the altar of the Lord their God. Think about that. We're going to have to give all of that up. We're just going to have to be, so. you know what? I'd rather be in slavery than killed. I'd rather give all of this up than be killed.
1: This is where they were at. And you know what God didn't do?
0: God didn't say destroy them. As a matter of fact, not only did God not destroy them, God defended them. Very next chapter, we read in chapter 10. We see the acceptance of God to the people of to these Gibeonites. Because all the other kings in that area have now heard how they have a treaty with the people of Israel and they decide that they want to make war with the Gibeonites because they've made peace with Israel. And the Gibeonites cry out to Joshua, Joshua, your servants are under attack. Come and protect us. And Joshua does, but it's not just Joshua. Verse 7 Chapter 10 says this. So Joshua marched up from Gilgal with his entire army, including all the best fighting men. And the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid of them. I've given them into your hand. Not one of them will be able to withstand you. And after an all-night march from Gilgal, Joshua took them by surprise. The Lord threw them into confusion before Israel, who defeated them in a great victory at Gibeon. Israel pursued them along the road going up to Beth Horon and cut them down all the way, uh, all the way to uh, Azekah, excuse me, and Makeda. And as they fled before Israel on the road down from Beth Horon to Azekah, the, hur- the Lord The Lord, the hur- Lord, the Lord hurled. That is a tongue twister, ladies and gentlemen. Every single time I've practiced that verse. I have been tongue-twisted every time. The Lord hurled large hailstones down on them from the sky, and more of them died from the hailstones than were killed by the swords of the Israelites. Now on that day the Lord gave the Amorites over to Israel. Joshua said to the Lord, In the presence of Israel, O sun, stand over Gibeon, O moon, over the valley of Ahajalon. So the sun stood still and the moon stopped till this nation avenged itself on its enemies as it is written in the book of Jashar. The sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed going down for about a full day. And there's never been a day like it before or since. A day when the Lord listened to a man. Surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. And then Joshua returned with all of Israel to the camp at Gilgal. What an amazing account. Sometimes we have read this account and maybe we have separated it from the fact that this came from a plea from help from the Gibeonites. And this isn't just a matter of Joshua fulfilling his vow to keep them safe, saying, you're under my protection. Then the Lord fought for the protection of the Gibeonites. Think about that for just a moment the large hailstones that came down that killed more of the Amorites than the swords of Israel. That the sun stood still for a full day so that Israel would have, you know, revenge on his enemies, those who have attacked Israel and those who are committed to Israel. We have this full acceptance from God. What do you think the Gibeonites thought of God after this? Seriously, pretty cool, right? I mean, kind of, oh, my goodness. This God whom we have, we have just become servants of, water carriers, woodcutters for, and look what he is doing for us, protecting us, not just the people of Israel fulfilling their vows, but the God who serves Israel has accepted us.
1: Though they were supposed to be destined for destruction, Right? According to all that command,
0: they're supposed to be destined for destruction. And yet, they're kind of singular, aren't they? Among all the other people that the Israelites fought and conquered, they're the only ones that made a treaty with them. Joshua 11 points this out, and it's just
1: interesting the language that's there.
0: So Joshua 11, verses 16 through 20, says this, So Joshua took this entire land, the hill country, all the Negev, the whole region of Goshen, the western foothills, the Arabah, the mountains of Israel with their foothills, from Mount Halak which rises towards Seir, to Baal Gad in the valley of Lebanon, below Mount Hermon. He captured all their kings and struck them down, putting them to death. Joshua raid, waged war against all these kings for a long time, except for the Hivites living in Gibeon. Not one city made a treaty with the peace, of peace with the Israelites, who took them all in battle. Wait a second. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Whoa, 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 whoa. Not one city made a treaty of peace, with Israel except the Gibeon. Wait, wait, wait. wait, But didn't we read at the very beginning in Deuteronomy 7 they weren't supposed to make a treaty of peace? Right? Isn't that what we're saying? No, No treaty of peace. No treaty of peace. Why did Deuteronomy say you're not supposed to have a treaty of peace? Because you'll adopt their gods, right? And in adopting their gods, my judgment will come upon you. You guys remember that? What God is wanting from the people of the land is a full repentance from all of those things. The Gibeonites did that, didn't they? We're giving up our God. We're going to serve your God. We're going to be woodcutters. We're going to be water carriers for your God. We're going to follow your God, and God, as a result, accepted them, fought for them, showed them the grace that was available, not just to them, but for everybody else. But nobody else made that treaty. And notice what it says in verse 20. For it was the Lord himself who hardened their hearts to wage war against Israel so that he might destroy them totally, exterminating them without mercy as the Lord had commanded Moses. We see a hardness of heart that had come upon the people of that land. So they fought against Israel. That's why those verses in the the very beginning of chapter 9 were so important. All of them came up to wage war against the people of Israel. They didn't want to submit to God. They wanted to war against God because they wanted to continue to live the lifestyle they had always lived. And that's what was bringing judgment. And it's interesting to me because this puts the conquest of Canaan, much like Pharaoh's heart for the people of Israel during that deliverance time in Egypt, right? Because at first we see Pharaoh hardening his own heart over and over and over again. He won't let the people of Israel go, and then finally he lets them go after a mighty hand that he chases after them. And at one point, it becomes this pivotal moment where Pharaoh hardens his heart one more time and then from then on out, God hardens their their heart. You've had your opportunity. You could have let them go. You could have let them go of your own free will. You You could have been praised. I could have raised you up for this moment that my power might be displayed in you, but now you're not willing and therefore my power is still going to be displayed. Same thing with the people in Canaan. And the only ones to avoid that were these Gibeonites. And here's a funny thing. That when we looked at the conquest of Canaan, whether we're looking at Rahab, the prostitute who accepted the spies, or the Gibeonites who have come with this deception of their own because they're saying, preserve my life. We've seen what God has done. We would rather follow that God and give up all of our old life than to continue in knowing that that's leading toward destruction. Guess what? Every single time that that desperation has hit those people, God has always, every single time, been merciful. Merciful. Rahab didn't die. Rahab and everybody in her household that was found there when Jericho's
1: walls fell were spared. The Gibeonites
0: didn't die. They were brought into Israel and God fought for them because we have a repentance, a turning away from these gods to follow the one true God, something that the other cities and the other peoples within the land of Canaan didn't want to do. They had hardened their hearts toward those things so God hardened them further. Which made it easy to wage war because they were already going to wage war against them. Made it easy for them to fulfill God's command of saying wipe them out because they're serving other gods. They're going to be a stumbling block and if you adopt those practices then guess what? I will be against you as well. It's for these reasons that God had placed that judgment there that Israel was now carrying out. And see, this is the same pattern that we see throughout all of Scripture, whether we look at Old Testament or New Testament. Everything that we look at here is a God who cares tremendously for his creation and wants them to repent, to turn back to him. Think about the account of Jonah. Jonah gets word to go to Nineveh. First thing he does is he runs the other way. I'm going to Spain instead. I know you want me to go this way over here. I'm going to go over here to Spain. You know why? I, I just really don't want to deal with that, right? So he gets swallowed by a fish, spit up on land, finally goes to Nineveh. And then he, his preaching to the people of Nineveh oh, man, it's a rough preaching. 40 days and none of us no more. That's it. 40 days and none of us no more. You're dead. You're dead to me, okay? This is basically Jonah the mafia prophet, right? You're dead to me. And he goes and he preaches this message. Three days going up and down the entire, the entire city. And from the lowest to the greatest person, this message reaches the king. The king says, oh my goodness, how bad we are. Let us humble ourselves. Let us repent with sackcloth and ashes. Maybe God will relent. And Jonah, the enforcer or prophet of God, right, goes over to the hill and sits and just waits for God to just destroy him. And when he doesn't, he gets mad. And afterwards, you know what he appeals to? The unchanging nature of God. I knew you were like this, God. Oh, I just wanted you to destroy them. I knew you were like this. That you're merciful and you're willing to, to forgive those who have repented from their sins. Oh, I just want you to destroy them. Or we think about the reference to the destruction of Jerusalem. Because you know that which the people of Israel are doing now would eventually be done to them nearly a thousand years later. As judgment comes to Jerusalem in the form of King Nebuchadnezzar and Jeremiah the prophet, even though judgment has been decreed and they're going to go into exile, Jeremiah the prophet goes to Zedekiah and says, look, surrender to these people and God will be good to you. You will not have this huge loss of life. Don't fight against God bringing this judgment upon you. Then listen.
1: And God's wrath ensued upon the people of Israel. Temples destroyed. Only about a tenth of the people are left. Everybody else is deported or killed. What we see in God is consistency throughout the scripture.
0: An understanding of who he is that he's righteous, he's a good God, he loves those who he's created and is willing to
1: redeem them if they repent. They turn away from their sin. Even 600 years worth of sin in the case of the Gibeonites.
0: We look in the bold judgments that are to come in Revelation chapter 16. I, I believe eschatology, study of the end times. We look at Revelation 14 from my study of Scripture. This is the the taking of the church. And all that's left are those who are going to receive the wrath of God. And as these bowls are poured out, there's just some interesting things that are being said during that time. So after the fourth bowl and the fifth bowl are poured out in Revelation chapter 16, it says these words, and they still would not repent of the sins that they had done. Even under these bowls of wrath, even recognizing that God is doing all this, there's no more guesswork. Is God real? He is absolutely real. These these, uh, bowls of wrath being poured out on everybody else, and as these judgments come down, and they're so bad, they still won't repent. No turning away. It gives you this this idea in Revelation that man, if they would just repent, even God at that moment in time would bring them in. It's not the end yet. Not all of the wrath has been poured out. And they don't want to do it. Like the people of Israel going into the land, they didn't want to submit to God so they made war against him.
1: This is what is... It's what's warned of us concerning the power of sin. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 through 14, says it this way.
0: See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily as long as it's called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly till the end. The confidence that we had at first. You realize there's still a hardening of our hearts that happen today. It's when we allow sin into our lives and we continue to live in that sin. It hardens our heart against the God who has come and sent his son to die for you and me. And we have a choice. We could choose our sin. And remained hardened toward God. But that ends up
1: making us enemies of God. That's not where God
0: wants it to be. God wants you and me to come to a place of repentance. His desire for you and me and for every one of his creation is to come to a place of repentance. Of a realization that though judgment is coming, he is so good he doesn't want anybody to go into that place.
1: But you've got a choice. Your sin, which hardens you against the goodness and the good nature of God. Or giving over to Jesus Christ.
0: And saying, just like the Gibeonites, it's worth it. It's worth every sacrifice. I can give up everything. In order
1: that I can just serve you. Second Peter 3.18 talks about
0: God's heart in the last days starting in verse 8 but do not forget this one thing dear friends with the Lord a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness he is patient with you not wanting anyone to perish but everyone to come to repentance But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Here we
1: have the heart of God wanting repentance for a people to be judged. But judgment is still coming. Because he wouldn't be a just God if he just let everything go.
0: We read John three sixteen, we oftentimes don't read the context. It used to be the most quoted verse and probably is top
1: two, right? Quoted verse in the Bible.
0: Attributed to Jesus, where he says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. This is a verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. See, this is the context of John 3.16. This is the entirety of that statement, and it states the very problem that we see throughout the scriptures. We see God, a righteous, holy God who must punish sin. That puts us all in the crosshairs. That's you, that's me, that's every single person in the crosshairs of God. You know why? Because you and I are sinners. We have fallen short of his glory. We have fallen short in ways that we have just indulged and enjoyed. And that separation because the wages of sin is death is something that God doesn't want for you and me. So he sent Jesus to die on your behalf and my behalf.
1: But the interesting thing here is
0: it says lights come into the world. is talking about Jesus. But men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. In, in other words, the
1: hardness of sin
0: that it does for you and me has us wage war against the very one who died on the cross for us so that we won't come to him so that we won't submit so that we won't turn away and say just anything anything to be in your kingdom for with you forever i will do anything you know because i recognize how dire my place is
1: anything Instead, we try to justify, try to hold on to that sin and say, God, you have to accept me with this. We won't come into the light
0: because our deeds are evil. Every single person who comes to Jesus Christ has to come forward and make that confession. My deeds, the things that I do, we all fall short. Even as believers you're going to fall short. But you've got to recognize that those are the things in which Jesus died for. He died so that you and I might have life through repentance a turning away from those things that we might have life. This is the thing that we see in every single place. So where we see judgment, we see grace. The Gibeonites are given grace. Though they were destined for destruction, they don't have to be and neither do you and neither do I and that's the good news
1: of the gospel of Jesus Christ that's an amazing thing but it's a hard thing to accept because we don't like saying we're wrong we don't like saying we need a savior we don't like saying that we are rightfully judged and found wanting. But that's what makes Jesus so good. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. But to you, that's me. And everybody who believes on him has eternal life. And this is what we see. Doesn't matter, Old Testament or new. The problem's the same. Destined for destruction? It depends. We all have a choice to make. God has given us an opportunity to have life. Everlasting with Jesus Christ. Unless we want to wage war against him and hold on to our sin. That's the choice. Every single one of us
0: has to have it. But the good news is this. God accepts every single person who comes at his feet Begging for mercy, they find it. They find
1: it. Rahab, Gibeon, David, Naaman, Old Testament or New, Paul, Pastor Jeremy, my prayer for you guys is that you know that grace, that mercy, That comes through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior.
0: This is what we've been praying for. End of our service, every single time we come together, we pray. Who are we praying for? We're praying for those who, whether they know it or not, they're destined for destruction unless they come to know Jesus. Jesus is the way out of that. And so we come, and we're coming to this place right here to pray for those, our coworkers, our friends, our family, anybody who doesn't know Jesus, that God might break down those barriers and give us the opportunity to share Christ with others. And we invite you today to do that. And maybe you don't know Jesus Christ. And maybe until this day you didn't think about you know, what it meant to be a believer in Jesus or understand what your situation was before Christ and to realize that Jesus is not just the way out, he's the only way out. And God was happy to give him to you. But it's going to take all that you have to walk in the light. Confess those sins and realize that God will be with you every step of the way. And so will we. We'll be your biggest cheerleaders. I promise that. So would you stand with me? I'm going to ask our elders to come up front. And they'll be on either side. If you have a decision to make for Jesus Christ yourself. We invite you to come. Talk with our elders. Let them pray with you. If you want to pray for somebody else. To come to know the grace of Jesus Christ we invite you to come right here to this place. Nobody's going to be with you. It's just you and the Lord right here. But there's something powerful about coming into this place and saying this, I want to pray for this person. I want to pray the opportunity to share for this person or for that person because they need to know the grace of Jesus Christ. And without Jesus, they're in the same boat I was before I knew Jesus. But by the grace of God, I don't have to be destined for destruction because of Jesus. And neither do they. Let's pray together. God, thank you so much for this time that we have together this day in the name of Jesus to recognize what you have done for us through Jesus Christ, to realize how bad we really were and how much we need your grace, that we come as beggars and you are so happy just to have us. Fall before your feet that who are destined for destruction, though you're say, say nobody should be saved in this in this way, yet you always, always, always make exception for the truly repentant. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. May that be us in Jesus' name.